be looking in John chapter 17 tonight, our last message on the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer, uh, John chapter 17. Jesus prayed, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified through the truth. On his way to the cross, during what was arguably the darkest part of the darkest night of human history, Jesus stopped to pray. In just a few moments, uh, they would be confronted by a mob led by Judas. He would be betrayed by a kiss, arrested, tried, crucified. Yet Jesus prayed. He prayed concerning his special person, that is the work that God had sent him to do, for his supreme purpose. But then he prayed for his saved people. And that began back in verse 11 and goes all the way through the end of this chapter. We saw last time how that he prayed for our protection. As he prayed that we be kept from evil or from the evil one, either one of those is appropriate Now we're going to see him beginning to pray, praying for his people. And we'll see tonight reaching across the centuries, yes, uh, to pray for you and to pray for me. Suppose you were able to pray for something today knowing that whatever you asked for would be granted. Maybe God would come to you as he came to Solomon so long ago in the night watch and say, ask me for whatever you will, and I'll give it to you. Man, that opens up a lot of possibilities for us tonight, doesn't it? Wow, what would we pray for? Well, Solomon prayed for wisdom, and what he prayed for pleased God. I bring that up for you tonight only for us to acknowledge the fact that everything Jesus prayed for, he received. Jesus didn't ask amiss. It's a sin to do that. So everything he prayed for was in the perfect will of God. He was in such perfect tune with the Father that it was impossible for him to pray for something that the Father wouldn't grant. To look then at a prayer, this prayer that Jesus prayed for us, we look into the very heart of God's purpose and plan for us because Jesus was praying for you and me, praying for all of his people, and he was praying then exactly what God would have for us. Our text reveals four specific petitions that Jesus prayed for his people. The first one we've already seen, he prayed for our protection Now tonight we're going to see how that he prayed for our sanctification. And that's in our text. See it again. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for thy sakes, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Sanctification is an often misunderstood and misapplied concept. The word itself is built around the word that is often translated holy or holiness in the scriptures. Uh, But even that really doesn't 
uh, transfer the idea very well to us. The word purely means to be set apart for God's purpose, for God's use. On a human and personal level, this means that we were doing what we were designed, what we were created to do because we were created to serve God, to love God, and to worship God. And so when we are sanctified, that simply means we are set apart then for the purposes of God and we are able to fulfill those purposes. Don't turn this on, guys, uh, but I'm going to reach over here and get one of these very expensive microphones. Now, we know what this is. It's a microphone. What is it designed to do? It is designed to amplify the human voice. It does a very good job of it. Uh, it can be tuned and uh, it can add sound effects and uh, through that marvelous thing called a mixer up there. And it does a lot of good stuff. But suppose I needed a hammer. I could use this microphone. What is it? About 200 bucks, guys? Higher than that, 300, 4, 500. I could use this for a hammer, this $500 piece of equipment, let's say. But, you know, nobody outside the Pentagon pays $500 for a hammer. Uh, you know, a $4 hammer from Dollar General would do just as good, or family dollar, to be fair. Uh, you don't use something this expensive. It was designed to do something glorious. There's nothing wrong with using a hammer. I mean, a hammer does a very good job. It's very effective at what it does. It drives nails. It breaks stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of things that a hammer does. If you need a hammer, get a hammer. But it is, in fact, degrading to this and, of course, would be destructive to this. To use it for something other than its intended purpose. If we can say tonight then that people were created to worship and glorify and serve God. We certainly can be used for a lot of other things. But if we are used for something other than the purpose for which we are designed and creating, it is degrading to us. And yes, it is destructive to us. When Jesus then prays for our sanctification, he is praying that we will do what we've been created to do, that we will be set apart to God, uh, to his worship. And in order to do that, we have to be in tune with the truth of God. We accept the truth of what God has said to us. We accept the truth of what God has said about us. We understand that God and God alone, our designer and creator, can tell us what we are supposed to do and what we are to avoid. Uh, of course, this begins with the truth of salvation. Nobody, nobody can be used for their intended purpose until they're first born again. Because, you see, sin has messed up this creation. And the only way, then, that we can get back right with God is, is through the new birth. But then it also involves our life, our living, our lifestyle, how that we live for God. 
every decision the Christian makes concerning his lifestyle or her lifestyle is a decision about the truth of God. Will we do what God has told us to do or, or not? Uh, it may feel okay to us uh, to use a microphone as a hammer. Or in my particular experience, I was inclined for some reason to grab a crescent wrench fairly often and use it for a hammer. But my daddy taught me the foolishness of such things. Uh, he was a stickler for using a tool for which it was designed. And there was only one time that I let him catch me using a crescent wrench for him. I'm not going to say I haven't done it since. But I never let him see me do it again. Oh, that was a bad day. It may feel okay to us, at least for a while. But just because it feels okay doesn't make it okay. Remember the Bible warns us there's a way that seems right, that feels right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. A lot of things that feel good to us can actually kill us. And certainly it can destroy our ability to glorify God the way we're intended. So Jesus then prays, first of all, for our protection and then he prays for our sanctification. As he then prays for our people, we see how that he prays for our unification. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. You see, that's where we enter into the prayer. He, Jesus very clearly tells us as I'm praying for my people. I'm just not praying for those who've already believed. I'm praying for all those who are going to believe. And we are in that number here tonight. And so when we're praying this prayer of Jesus, we need to remember that Jesus prayed for me. Now, praying for one another is important. <laughs> oh, but aren't we glad that Jesus intercedes for us. And he's always praying for us. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. He prays then for our unification that they all may be one. Many attempts through the centuries have found the people of God trying to apply this passage as if it is up to us to fulfill it. Uh, most of this activity has focused on uh, uniformity of looking alike and being alike rather uh, than on union. But this is given by Jesus as our objective. I've read that there are three essentials of military planning. There must be an objective, there must be a strategy, and there must be a tactic. Now, Jesus has given these uh, prayer and everything that's in it very much, in a sense, in a, in a battle zone. And he was about to fight that out. So it's not surprising that in this passage you'll see his objective 
You'll see his strategy and you'll see his tactics. Twice in this passage, he outlines specifically what God intends to accomplish. It's in verse 21, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that thou hast sent me. This is the great objective. We can understand how that objective has a generational identity. That is that every generation has to learn the truth about Jesus Christ and they will either receive it or reject it. Every generation, this battle has to be fought again and again and again. These decisions have to be made again and again and again. Every generation, and Solomon told us about that, one generation is being born and another generation is passing away. That is happening in our world. It's happening in our nation. It's happening in our community here in Cabot. It is happening in our church. A generation is always passing. Another generation is always being born. That generation that's passing is going on to glory. Their time is done. Their their battle is over. Uh, They've gone on to be with the Lord in their reward. But that generation that's being born is going to have to learn everything (laughs) about who Jesus is, about what he has done, about how to live, about how he intends for us to live. Everything is up to them. They have to learn it. And in our world today, They better learn quickly, amen? Because the challenges that these young people face are growing exponentially all the time. They're being hammered by a world that knows, just like we know, that if they can get to them while they're still young, that the chances are their decisions will be made and whatever they make is going to be set and settled. God's great objective is so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That is that Jesus Christ is God's authoritative representative in the world. The writer of the book of Hebrews puts it so plainly for us in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 that God in times past spake in many ways by the prophets, but he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he has appointed the heir of the world. This son then is his expressed image. He is the very image of God. Jesus Christ cornered the market on the revelation of God. He also cornered the market. There's no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. God's whole redemptive plan then is aimed at one target, the world. I want to say that again. God's objective is the world. God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son. God's redemptive focus is on the world. It's easy for Christians to forget this over time. We forget that we were ourselves once part of the world. For most of us, it was a long, long time ago when we were really young. It's hard for us to remember that, yes, though maybe you were saved like I was as a child. I was saved at seven years old, but I was as much a child of hell as a person living on the street and 80 years old. It it doesn't matter. I, I was headed for hell. I was lost. So were you. 
so were you. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But after we've been saved for a while, our focus tends to shift. And we begin to think maybe that God's program kind of stops with us. Because we get so concerned about what blesses us, what helps us, how God is good to us, how that God is working in us, how that God worked in me, how that he works in my family, how, what's God going to do for, for my kids. What's God going to do for at, at my workplace? What is God going to do for my business? And it's all that focus is about what God is doing for us. If we're not careful, we will lose sight of the fact that God, God's redemptive focus goes beyond us. God still loves the world tonight. God still loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. If it was all about us and what God was going to do for us, then it would make sense for us to be saved and just raptured all the same minute. Just pray, poof, and then gone. And if it was all as a lot of people believe, if it was all up to God and God picks and chooses who's going to make it and who's not, then, uh, hey, God could do all of that just as well without us. Why doesn't he just, poof, take us on to heaven? Obviously, he's got a purpose. What is that? One writer put it this way. I loved it. He said, God leaves us here in order that we may learn how to share in the painful process of drawing a struggling, rebellious creation unto himself. We become a part of God's work to reach the world. Paul would speak of how that we have our share, in a sense, of the sufferings of Christ. Because we too suffer that pain of rejection. We too see that resistance. We too see that rebellion. And oftentimes, though they are rebelling against the gospel, and we know it, they're rebelling against God, we know it. They're resisting God, we know it. They're not listening to, to God, we know it. And yet oftentimes, the hostility that they really feel toward God is directed at who? Us. You and me. We're the ones, you see, that put a face on it. We're the ones that put a voice to it. We're the ones who are talking to them about sin and about redemption and the gospel. And it's hard for us. It's very difficult for us. We feel that suffering. We, we suffer along with it, yes. Not that we had a part in the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. But we join in his suffering. Yes, the suffering that comes from drawing, dealing with a struggling and rebellious creation. God leaves us here to join in that process. The church does not exist to make the world a better place to live. That's not our goal. Now, if more and more people get saved... <laughs> You and I know the world will be a better place. Amen? That's true. But our purpose, our objective is that the world may believe that the Father has sent Jesus Christ. Um, God has spelled out His plan for us. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I want to talk about a an objective, a mission statement. This is how, how we have This is what God has for us. 
for the sake of a confused and sinful world facing enormously complex problems, then Christians must not isolate ourselves from the world. That, that's the very thing we're here to reach. The goal, the target, the objective. We exist then as a church to be God's instrument by which people are infiltrated, if you will, come in, 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 into contact with the gospel truth of Jesus Christ, and they see then that Jesus is the authentic voice of God, representative of God, and they see that through us. This is complex and difficult. For every lost person, listen to me tonight, every lost person on this planet lives in confusion and spiritual blindness, and they are dead to the things of God. Confusion, spiritual blindness, dead to the things of God. I've often thought of that day when God sent the prophet Ezekiel out in that valley full of dried up bones and said, preach to them. How would you like to have been Ezekiel? In a sense, you are. That's where you are when you try to talk to your lost friends that you know at work. That's where you are when you try to talk to your lost friends at school students. That's where you are when you're talking to your neighbor across the street that doesn't know God. That lost family member. God asked Ezekiel, Ezekiel, son of man, he called him, shall these bones live? <laughs> Do you remember what Ezekiel said? O Lord, thou knowest that was a very good answer but of course you know how the story played out he preached to them and the, and the wind uh, and blew and there was a, a shaking and and that great old spiritual saw the knee bone connected to the thigh bone and all of a sudden those bones were standing up and then got flesh and sinew on them and sure enough they became a mighty army that's the power of the Word of God, the power of the gospel on display. So if our objective is to reach the world, and it is, then what is our strategy? God didn't leave us to make it up for ourselves. He puts it right here in the text, verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Now... There are still those who are clamoring for this objective to be shown in our world. The World Council of Churches is just one of many voices clamoring for all the denominations to forget about our distinctions, whatever they are. Uh, the, just put the Word of God to the side. We're not going to worry about that. We're going to all create some artificial form of unity, and then that will be a, uh, bring in this great revival uh, but folks, I, I submit to you tonight that Jesus prayed this prayer and then he went to the cross and answered it. How do I know that? Because the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized or immersed into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one. In Christ Jesus. You see when Jesus prayed that we all might be one. He went out to the cross. And he answered that prayer. 
Because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And we are then, because we are in Christ, also in the Father. And we're also in the Spirit. All of those truths are declared for us in the New Testament. So there is a place of oneness. And that exists in Christ. If that is the objective then to reach the world. And the strategy is to make us one in Christ. And Jesus Christ has done that. Then what are the tactics? Verse 23. I and them and thou and me that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. What is the tactic? God loves us through Jesus Christ. He so loved us. God so loved the world. And he tells us then to love one another. In fact, in John chapter 15, he would say, Father, that they might love one another as I have loved them. This is the tactics. We love one another. What does this require on our part? How does this play out for us? First of all, it implies mutual contact. I'm going to say something a little harsh tonight, but it's true. It is self-deception of us to speak of loving Christians that we won't speak to. It is self-deception for us to speak of loving Christians that we won't speak to. There must be contact. If the world is going to see it, they're going to have to see us interact with one another, talk to one another, no aloofness, no withdrawing. Thankfully, the New Testament does give us a, a bit of solace because Paul taught us as much as life within you, he said, live peaceably with all men. And the reason why the Bible gives us that is because you know it and I know it. I can do everything in the world to get along with some people. I can do everything I know how to do to be nice to them, to, to speak kindly to them, to love them. But some folks won't let you. Do you know what I'm talking about tonight? We've experienced that. And so as much as in us, that is in us, live peaceably with all men. We're to seek peace and pursue it. We're to do our part, even though others might not do theirs. Sometimes it's not that way. Sometimes we allow something to get between us and, and it lingers and it grows. Um, I haven't seen it in Faith Baptist Church, but I've seen it in other churches where people go to the same church every Sunday and yet they won't speak to each other. Would walk by each other, not shake hands, never greet one another, of course, we've kind of got used to not shaking hands last year or so. I'm glad it's back. I don't know how for how long, but uh, glad it's back. But there's more to it than that. There, it, it's that just greeting one another and acknowledging one another and speaking to one another. You see, there has to be some mutual contact among us. We need that. There's also mutual concern. Not just uh, that superficial greeting, although that's a good thing but a willingness then to invest in other people's lives, to learn who they are, to find out what their needs are, to build a relationship with them. The willingness to bear one another's burdens in the Lord and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
every church, every church that I've ever been a part of, even those that I've gone to and preach in revival, and you can see that you can see it play out. And if I talk to the pastor, they'll say it's the same thing. Every church struggles with assimilating new people. Now, the reason is because after we've been together for a while, I mean, look at look around here tonight. Some of you folks have been friends for 18 or 20 or maybe 30 years. Y'all have long-standing, lifelong relationships with one another. Y'all are good friends. You know each other. You call each other. You talk to each other. But new people, when they come in, that, that's a hard thing to, to break into. Uh, they like it. <laughs> they, they, they watch it go on. Yeah, these folks are friendly. They're friendly to each other. But then I'm, I'm left kind of on that. Man, I, I wish there was an opening there <laughs> to let me in. Now, now some, sometimes we get new folks, and you know what? They just bust right in the middle of it. I mean, they're so uh, outgoing, and, and they're just determined. They're, they're going to find out who we are, whether we want them to or not. You know, they're, they're going to follow us on Facebook, nose around until they know who we are and what we're up to. They'll, they'll figure us out. Uh, but a lot of people aren't. We have to constantly, constantly be on the lookout for new people and, and try then to show that concern. Because you see, when God grows our church, then our relationships need to grow with it. We need to make room for new people. Show them that mutual concern so that we know one another. And then lastly, there's that sense of contribution that comes the recognition that we need each other. We're not condescending when we give ourselves to other Christians. We need each other. You have things that I need. I have things that you need. How do I know that? The Bible says it. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 12. Can the foot say to the eye, I have no need of thee? <laughs> uh, the foot's a very good foot. But I'll tell you that thing trips sometimes over nothing. It needs good eyesight. The foot can't say to the eye or to the hand, I have no need of thee. We need each other. I've gained a lot being around new believers, and you have too. Yes, they needed something that I could give them, but I needed something maybe that they could give me as well. We need one another. And so we see how Jesus prayed for our protection. He did that. He prayed for our sanctification. He prays then for our unification under that overall objective that God has of reaching the world and the strategy that he is going to use and the tactics that he's going to accomplish, our unity, our love for one another. Then lastly, he prays for our glorification Verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Amen. <laughs> yes, Lord. That they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Oh, yes, what a day that's going to be. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. I mentioned to you this morning about love and how important it is and how dangerous it is when we let it go away. So I'm not going to talk about that very much. 
I did read this uh, quote this week I wanted to share with you. The supply of love within the family of God has run low. And as a consequence, the church presents its face to the world as just another impersonal business institution. With the only difference being that it majors in morality and public worship rather than in merchandise or finance point this writer was making was that if the church allows its love, the love for Christ and love for one another, and especially the demonstration of that love within the local body, if we take that out of the equation, then all you've got is another business. And our business then is public worship and the teaching of morality. Instead, the church is designed to be a family where members love one another and know one another and accept one another and pray with one another, where they laugh and weep with one another because they genuinely do indeed love one another. There will always be people in church who are a challenge to our ability to love them. I have come to believe over the course of spending my entire life serving God's churches. I've come to believe that God has a unique way of bringing people into our fellowship who are going to challenge our ability to love one another. I say that because Jesus taught us, you know, if all you do is love those who love you, if you like those who are like you and like you back, then what have you done? We're no different than anybody else. Uh, God calls on us to love people even when they're ignorant. After all, we were one time ignorant too. He, he calls on us to love people even when they make bad choices. After all, we've made bad choices too. When they make bad decisions, yep, we've got to love them. <laughs> and how about this one? When they get on my nerves, yeah. Not just people that we like, not just the people with whom we share interests, not just the ones we've been around for a long time and we've built strong relationships with, but we love one another. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul gave us the great and definitive explanation of how this worked when he said, husbands, love your wives. That's not hard. That's not difficult. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Now that's the challenge. And John chapter 15, where Jesus gave them a new commandment. As I have loved you, so you also love one another. You fill a church up with people who love Jesus Christ and love each other, and you'll never have problems filling that church up. If we show that love so that other people can Walk in the door and they can feel that we genuinely care about them. These are people who, are, who really do love Jesus and they really do love people. That's the plan. That's the strategy. That is the tactic, if you will, that Jesus put before us to reach the world. Oh, we've been trying to come up with substitutes ever since. Why is that? Because this one's difficult. <laughs> it's tough. It is. It's tough. 
we think it, it kind of sounds easy. Well, just love people. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's yeah. people can be tough to love. This is a tactic. Jesus said, when you do this, then all the world, the world will know that God sent me and that I've sent you. They'll make that connection. You've been with Jesus. <laughs> and oh, by the way, for Jesus to make this kind of change in people, he has to be moving in the power of God. We've got his word on it. It's right here in John 17. And it's as true today as it was the night that he prayed it. Let's stand together, please.